Ron Barracks Action, a Rivenstone podcast where we discuss Broken Anvil Miniatures' exciting new war game. Barracks Action is hosted on the Line of Sight Network. You can find out more about the network and its various podcasts on LOSWarMachine.com. Barracks Action. I am Reese. I am joined by my other lovely co-hosts, which are Red. Hello, hello. And Spencer. Hey, y'all. And uh, we have a. We're, we're going to talk about something a little bit new today uh, and interesting. After, especially after a few of the games, we've had so many people playing the uh, TTS mod over the last what week and a bit that we've had it out, and it's it's been really good to see. So we're going to talk about some tactics and stuff. But before we get into that, uh, we're just going to go through some community announcements. So um, BAM did do the uh, another update on the Kickstarter, and they've shown the, uh, I think now we've seen the alternate sculpt for the uh, Stone Touch Knight and the alternate sculpt for the Oryx Battlemaster that'll be, uh, that were unlocked when we hit 200k. Um, and we've also hit the first social share uh, goal as well, which means that everybody who's backed gets uh, digital wallpapers of the true name characters and the faction logos. Uh, is there anything else that I've missed? No, not at all. I think we've actually really talked about the new stretch goals at all. That is true. Because everything changed. Because <laughs> yeah. we already lied to everyone. Yeah, <laughs> led them down the wrong rabbit hole. Well, let me quickly bring that up because I had it in me in front of me a second ago, and then I've moved it. So, um, yeah. So basically, uh, everything changed. What it is now is the first three stretch goals are still the same, which was so, and they've all been unlocked, which was the alt arts, the illustrations in the book, um, and the uh, world map. Stretch goal number four is now uh, every single starter comes with their alternate sculpt. Uh, it's a Kickstarter exclusive, so you get the alternate Knight of Exile Order for Risen, the Weldmonger for Iron Guard, the Stone Touch Knight for Shadow Empire, and the Battlemaster for the Oryx. Uh, we've also unlocked the following goal, which was the wallpapers, the digital wallpapers for all of the faction art. Uh, that's also uh, Kickstarter exclusive. The next stretch goal, which is at 250,000, which we haven't hit just yet, is a um, paint tutorial video for the factions. Um, after that, we've got 260,000. This is what I really want, which is the Rivenstone dice bag. Um, oh, cause nice. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sucker for dice bags. Uh, and then it gets even better when you hit 270,000 and we get the battle mat because that thing is amazing. I so want this battle mat so bad. Like that, this is like the one, <laughs> one of the goals that I'm like, let's make this one for the love of God, please. <laughs> yeah, I know. For anyone that, that isn't playing on TTS currently, we have uh, been given an uh, image of the battle mat. Yes, yeah. Um, Hannah, Ooh, Hannah was buddies, pretty. Hannah was incredibly gracious enough to give us the uh, image file for the mat, and it looks amazing. Um, all right, after that as well, um, at two hundred eighty thousand, uh, all of the pledges unlock a concept art book PDF, which again, really keen to see. Having watched Steve sketch a bunch, I really want to see like all of the other art that goes into this game. Um. 
Stretch goal number 10 is at 290,000, which is alternate card art. Now, I'm not sure what that one's specific to. I would assume it would be um, either followers or um, card art for like the heroes on the other side compared to their infused side, but we haven't got any confirmation on that one. Uh, yeah, I thought it was like different card art for like the alternate sculpts. Oh, that would make sense as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, I can get behind. I can get behind that to be hundred percent honest. It's like, hey, alternate art. I'm fine with that. Um, what's next? Three hundred k. We unlock the alternate add-on sculpts. Now, can we remember what that one was? Because I'm vague on that off the top of my head. That's the rest of the. That's the rest of the alt sculpts for the other oh, four. Yeah. For the other four veterans. So yeah. the trailmaster, the headhunter. Head yep. Cool. The, the troll runner uh, and all. Patrol Runner and the yep. Master Nightblade. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Thank you all. Yeah, we need we need Skelly Dwarf. So someone start throwing money at the thing so I can get the 300k. <laughs> um. <laughs> that is trinket. Yeah. Ah, so good. Um, the Disco Mask. Oh yeah, yeah. Disco Mask is gonna be great. Uh, 310,000 is the retailer Welcome to Ven kit. Um, I remember Hannah mentioning what that had in it, but I've already forgotten to be 100% honest. So uh, I will have to look that up at some point. Um, 320k gets us another battle map, which is always Sorry, what was that? I said I have no clue what's in it, but retail support's always great. Yeah, exactly. I get the feeling it was like terrain and some other stuff as well that was going out to retailers. I do, I, I feel like part of it was mentioned. I'd have to, I'd have to dig it up though. And yeah. Um, actually, some boosters and stuff because, like, those are always yeah. nice to draw. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 320,000, we get another battle map which has been confirmed to be the Jagged Downs. So, that'll probably be more like your desert area. Um, I imagine it's the battlefield map equivalent that they used in the Ninjon and Miniac uh battle report, would be my guess. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, everyone would like the and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and then 330k gives us the uh, alternate parts to the true name heroes. So, you know, Belcroft and Tor and Quorum and all that get some cool new fancy uh, fandangles to attach onto themselves. Uh, nice. What do we got? 300, 340k is alternate muster sculpts for the ones you get doubles of. So that's the line troopers, the foot soldiers for Risen the um, Tunnel Fighters, and the Brutes. Uh, 350k is Acrylic Sticks and Tokens, which is fantastic. And 400k is the ultimate be-all, end-all that we all want, which is the Wild Starter gets moved up from Wave 2 and 3. I think some of the parts are to Wave 1. Yeah, this would be like the ultimate goal, is getting that Wild Starter to, 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 to come forward. This is where yeah. Wild Predators, uh, from what I understand, Wild Predators is the coalition that will be in that one. Uh, yeah. And uh, that would be really exciting to have that bumped to wave one. Yeah, it also comes with the um, uh, old mate swinging his giant Riven Greatsword uh, and some uh, cultists and stuff as well. I'm pretty sure the 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 uh, followers that are in that. Oh, yeah. Most yeah, definitely. I need, need the Wild Starter. <laughs> and he just stopped being indecisive about what uh what other faction to pick up. And if Wildstar pops out, then I don't have to decide it's Wildstarter. Yep. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, I I'm basically at this rate going for everything, so I don't think it's a massive issue for me to my indecisiveness is just I'll get everything. Um 
because why not? But no, that's um that's about it. Do we have any other news at all? Um, that's that's really about it across the um, Kickstarter as well, which we bundled into that, which is good. Yeah, I think the only other like real news news in the community is we're getting really close to possibly having the uh, book. Um, on BAM, they went ahead and gave us kind of a breakdown of all the turns and stuff like that. And they said that there's going to be a plain text rule book with some rudimentary illustrations just because they know that we're playing on TTS. So they're kind of pushing that ahead. Uh, and then the beautiful rule book, the actual, actual quality rule book, will come at a later date. Yeah, so basically it'll just be a plain text variant. It'll just be, you know, a bunch of text, some really basic diagrams, and away we go. Yeah, most I think our whole I think our whole next video series is a uh is is an update because um Hungerford dropped us all of the scenarios. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I think that all I think that's new as far as in terms of our what we've talked about in the podcast. Yeah. Or oh. all, all of yeah, having access to all the scenarios now is amazing. And then just a general community shout out: we have a second podcast uh, that has came out called the Rivenstone Report, uh, and I've listened to the first episode and the second episode, and uh, really liking what I'm hearing. Uh, they're doing some things a little bit uh, different than the way we're doing. They're giving some very uh, some various different takes on things. So you get even more opinions on the game and uh, more ways to look at it. Yeah, nice. I have, I've yeah. got it queued up. I haven't been driving enough this week to be able to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got two episodes out now. I've listened to the first one and half of the second one. And every time I go to listen to the other half, someone wants a game. But I guess that's the last point I want to make for our community sort of news is like, it's been so good. Like every time I look at the discord, there's someone in there playing a game yeah. um, on the TTS. So like kudos to that guys. I hope everybody um, listen, who listens um, is well aware that we have it there. And if you're playing it, fantastic. Like, give us any feedback though, because we're happy to, to, to change things if we can. But so far I've run a couple of demos and everybody's had a blast. So that's really good. Yeah. And then there was a, a guy on uh, YouTube, right? Beard Hammer Wargaming. Uh, didn't he do some yeah, videos yeah. on things? Yes. Yeah, there is a couple of videos, actually. They are linked in our Discord in the community content. But yeah, it is yeah. under... Oh, yeah. Uh, it is under... Beard yeah, Hammer. wow, there's a whole lore series. Yeah, under Beard Hammer Wargaming. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So definitely check his video out uh, too as well. I'll try to put a, a link in our show notes so that you can at least find that YouTube channel and stuff. Uh, and then obviously uh, we are posting this stuff up in our community content on the Barracks Action Discord. So if you want to join the community there, uh, we are more than happy to, to get you a game and uh, get some play going. <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, all right. So now that we've touched on all of the fun stuff, let's talk about the more fun stuff, which is strategy and tactics of Rivenstone. Um, this is going to be a prelude to us going through all of the scenarios that'll be out uh, with the Wave 1 releases. Uh, like Spencer mentioned before, Hungerford was kind enough to drop all 10 of them to us um, and the community as a whole. And so um, they are actually all in TTS as well. Every single one of them's there. Uh, but we're going to go through sort of like basic 
strategy and tactics that you sort of need to whether it's like take into account or just be aware of when you're playing the game uh, because it's a lot different than most war games uh, especially if you come off the back of something like warhammer where it's you know i go you go turn over and this has so much sort of individual flexibility with the way that a turn plays out there's some things to take into account like timing wise and sort of things you need to be thinking of ahead of time um but to start it off spencer what would you say is the if you were to give one quick like elevator pitch if you would of important things to take note of what would your elevator pitch for the strategy and tactics of rivenstone be or even just like a tempo war game in general um always make sure that you're scoring victory points (laughs) (laughs) that's really that's largely what it comes down to in a lot of games i've played um a lot of people are you know they'll they'll position in ways to protect models or um just in other ways that i don't really understand that doesn't make them scenario relevant and in rivenstone that that gets really really interesting just because of the three different ways that you score victory points so you've got your scenario elements themselves plus your hero's quests plus bounties so those are three different things you have to keep track of at, at all at all times in order to determine like what the the best play is is for the moment and making sure that you know when you you start up a turn my first thought is is how am i going to score victory points this turn and how am i going to deny my opponent true score this turn yep. Yep, because exactly. at the end of the day the way you win the game is victory points. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if your stuff dies as long as you end up with more victory points. Um especially with followers, because they're they don't have a bounty, so they're expendable. Um unless you need them for some strategy you're playing or something. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, with an exile sure. knight, like you need you need followers. Like you, you gotta have because that they score you your victory points. But um yeah, like that's that's the number one thing to keep in mind at all times is how am I scoring victory points? How am I progressing myself on the road to victory? Yeah. And to build and on from that what as well. To get there is a lot more complicated. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, but as, just to quickly extend on that as well, as like a big thing with that is um, and it'll take some getting used to with random round length in Rivenstone, you kind of need to when that after you like probably your second to third turn of a round, you need to be in a position to be scoring objectives in case a double gets rolled on the shard die and the round just ends. But every time you activate, you need to be doing as much as you can to score points or to put yourself in a position to score points or deny your opponent points. Um, Because there's that three stages of point scoring, you know, scenario, quests and bounty, you need to plan for all of them sort of equally every time you do something like if you're going to move a character up is that character if they're, if they're at risk are you going to trade victory points or are you going to still be like net a positive mm-hmm. yeah and i think um you know on that note like as soon as technically as soon as it hits flux two it could be your last one of the round but mm. that hasn't happened yeah. <laughs> um, at least until we get the uh, the tales of dark, tales of shadows. Yeah. Um, 
but as soon as as soon as it hits flux three you you have to be like where you need to be in two um you know be scenario relevant because you might not get uh another turn Mm. um or sorry, as soon as it hits, hits flux four, because the the round might end there, and so like you need you need to be paying attention to like this this is where I need to be in case this happens, in case the round ends, and I don't have another. And well, um, one yeah. of the things I've noticed in my demos is that it it's it's taking uh, a lot a lot of newer players like don't appreciate that, and they wait until like their third turn of the round until they even start like moving on to objectives and being stereo relevant because they're they're playing you know, a little bit scared because you know a lot of them still have mindsets of other war games where you need to like take some time set up you don't want to lose your models mm. but in typo game like uh dude I, I don't care my as soon as the round ends I'm getting a bunch of models back like go die um as best case scenario is they don't die and then they score me points worst case scenario is they were somewhere that wasn't relevant anyways putting any pressure on my opponent and my opponent should just go through their game plan um so i'd rather just put them in a position to where my opponent has to react to my models rather than just doing what they want to do you know yeah um yeah it's when i when i think about it i usually think about it in um early round versus end round. Uh, and what I mean by that, no matter what war game I play, the very first thing, just like Spencer says, I look at the objectives. How am I scoring victory points in this game? Then I look at my opponent and I think to myself, how is he going to try to stop me from scoring my objectives? And then at that point, I develop my game plan on how I'm wanting to score my objectives. And so my early round stuff I am looking at concepts like central threat. I'm looking at uh, model advantage. I'm looking at uh, economy advantages. Uh, in this one, we have shard advantage, figure advantage. Uh, we have uh, those kind of things. Uh, and my early round, which in this game, I look at early round being like first through fourth turn. Uh, by fourth turn, we are switching into end round where the game can end or the round can end at any moment. And so first through fourth, fourth turn is trying to set me up to be able to capitalize towards end round to gain my objectives. Because I don't want to run onto my objective usually too early, because then it gives my opponent more opportunity to thwart me uh, by flipping an objective sometimes. Uh, but I also don't want to be in a position where I can be easily stopped from getting to an objective. So I think that early round, uh, the early round uh, push for for positioning is very very key. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and and that's a big thing as well. Is like you need to be aware that you can't. You, I mean, you can commit early on, but if you commit early on, you give your opponent an extra turn, maybe even two to you know deal with that whatever you've put there. Like you know, you put a you put a muster of followers on an objective. And be like, cool, I'm gonna hold this. And then next turn your opponent walks up, pushes them all off or or kills them off, and then you've gotta then recommit to that objective. Whereas if you'd done it, say, a turn later, um, and this is a, a comment that Spencer made when we were playing a game the other day, is like you need to think a turn ahead always. Mm-hmm. Uh, bare minimum, one turn ahead. 
And that's that's very key, especially in this game when the, the game can end one turn ahead. Yep. And yeah, for sure. For sure. And go ahead. A lot of it I was gonna say, like a lot of it starts at the very beginning, like with your models. <laughs> like before you even get to scenario. And um because each faction because really it's each coalition but right now we're mostly talking factions because wave one we don't have a big diversity uh has a, a game plan that, that that they're going for they want to accomplish in the ways that they score their rookie points how they play things of that nature's so it starts there and then you see your scenario and now you know what it is that you're doing in order to score your points. And luckily for all of y'all, uh, the Rubenstone Report is currently doing some faction breakdowns to help go through the various models and how they play and what it is that they want to do, uh, which we're also going to do as well in the future. But before that, we are doing a scenario breakdown to help you uh, work through what it is that your specific goals are for different scenarios so that you can have that that game plan going into it. And then from there, you need to look at your opponent and what it is that they want to do. And uh, like Red was talking about, you know, he wants to look at how he's scoring victory points and how he can make sure his opponent doesn't stop him from doing that. But then you also need to look at how your opponent is scoring victory points and how you can stop them from doing that. And I think that's the the next level of like the 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 strategic thinking which is your like overarching long-term like game plan uh in terms of you know winning the game whereas tactical thinking is your is your round to round this is my turn what can i accomplish type of situation right there's an old adage in uh warhammer 40k when i used to play there if your opponent can't win you can't lose uh, and that is something very, it's very important to remember. Uh, it's a little bit harder in this game uh, and everything like that. But if you're looking at uh, any war game, typically there are ways that an opponent is going to score his victory points and denying that opponent those chances. So like at the time that this adage was very, uh, very precedent in 40K uh, squads, you needed people with objectives could secure to secure objectives. Well, if you destroyed all of his objectives secured, he can't win, so therefore you can't lose. Uh, And in this game, though, what you're looking at is you want to make sure you know how not only your objectives, but this adds another level, uh, which is quests. Um, That is an objective that is built in or baked into each person's hero choices. And by looking at the quests on his opposing heroes, which is a part of your objective look, you can also decide how he possibly is planning on winning this game. Uh, And then you can, uh, once you've developed that skill at being able to look at the objectives uh, objectively, (laughs) uh, (laughs) once you get that skill down, then of course the next skill is starting to learn denial. And in most war games, like in War Machine, uh, you learn your army first to where you can play it, you can unpack it, you can move it, you know how it moves. 
uh, in chess, you learn your strategies and how you, which different line you want to take in your strategy, uh, which is where you get into flexibility, which I know Spencer will be talking about later. Uh, in pretty much any game, you learn your army first and all the things that you can do. Then at that point, you start learning your opponent's armies and how to stop them. Uh, and once you get into that level, the game really starts to become interesting because every opponent that you face, you're now playing that opponent. You're now in that game actually playing against them because you're no longer worried about your plan. Your plan, you learn no. Uh, and now you're learning all the nuances. Yeah, exactly. And and that sort of, um, again, comes down to, I agree with what you said just then, right? It's like, if you know your army straight off the bat, then that's half the puzzle solved because if you know exactly what everything you have does at all times you are in a really good spot to be able to adapt quickly as well if something happens that you weren't expecting um and that comes into the, the the tactical side of it is like if you set up this big play something happens can you react to what just happened that you know through a spanner in the works and knowing everything that your faction does, every model that you have does, really, really helps with that. Yeah, that comes with a lot of repetitive play on occasion. Uh, one of the things in like uh, War Machine and in Warcaster uh, and in 40k, or pretty much any war game I've ever played, uh, don't change your list too often. Make a list, make a solid plan, and then you want to put in a good 20, 30 games with that uh, with that faction studying that plan. Uh, now you know everything that your models can do, and then spend another 10, 20 uh, games now playing the game against other people to see if that plan is actually viable. Because uh, sometimes you get beat out a couple of early times in the early games that you're losing. It's not because your plan wasn't solid. It might be because you don't know your models good enough to react well. And then you make a change and you basically start all over. And then you hit that wall again and then you make a change and you start all over and you make a change and you start all over and you make a change and you start all over. And if you just stuck through it a little bit longer, you might've learned your army a little bit better. And then all of a sudden, some of those answers to those problems will start to become apparent and you'll be able to think for solutions at that point because you just know your army so well. Yeah. And one, like one example is currently there's a, uh, a big discussion in our discord right now about Shattered Empire and how easy some of their models score, particularly the, the stone touch knight. But what I don't see anybody talking about is that all you have to do is push the stone touch knight off the objective. Like you don't have to kill him. You yeah. can just push him, yep. and then that denies them so many, so many victory points. So many. It's, and it's um, like you can even do that with a risen archer. A risen archer can walk up and exactly. push a stone touch knight off of the objective, and that's it. Yep, exactly. I, I want to, I want to see that happen because technically it is possible. So <laughs> it's very possible, and and that's a yeah, good thing. So just realizing your different lines, lines of play, and your options is important. Yeah, that's a good thing for like end round where like a stone touch knight gets onto an objective and suddenly in my mind, I'm like, oh, I got to get him off. But do I need to get him off now? Can I set a model out there that the stone touch knight can't get to and that he can't kill 
so that then I can set up for him to move in, push you off the objective on that uh, last one or two turns, and then suddenly flop that objective or move in and, and just kill the stone touch knight. Because if the stone touch knight comes after he set himself on the objective, he comes off that objective to come and get me, I've also got him off of the objective. Uh, even if they, so like, don't go into a situation where you're going to rush that stone touch knight and then the stone touch knight can stay on the objective and kill you at the same time. Uh, you don't want to give him that because then yeah. he's getting his cake and eating it too. Um, yeah. And sometimes like on, on that same note is like killing the stone touch knight might not be the play. Right. Because one thing that, you know, shattered empire players can do is they can just take a barracks action and then run that stone touch knight onto an objective that you don't have a hero around and they're scoring it. Mm -hmm. yep. So like planning, planning out when, and that that's on you as a stone touch knight player to realize as like, that's a possibility for me. I had a really good game with Norris uh, the other day where like that, that's what came down to like that play. He had to have the stone touch knight barracks action, run up, stand next to the objective and kill a murder bird. That was um, on the other side of the board, and if he did it on his first attack, he wins. And then if he had to buy a sh buy a shard attack, he killed it. We tied, and I got lucky. <laughs> we ended up tying. Um, but that that game was awesome, and just seeing seeing those plays because he, you know, he's he's still a relatively new player, and he didn't. See, I, we're all relatively new players. What am I talking about? But he didn't he didn't see that line of play. But he was like, "There's nothing I can do here." I'm like, "Bro, you can you can win." <laughs> and he's like, "What?" Um. Yeah, as long as he rolled a two, and like that's where that shard dice bit comes in, because like mm. is it can totally change the games. Is this <laughs> is this a two, a one, or an X? Right. What are we getting? Um, well, that kind of also goes back into the the learning your army, learning their army. Mm -hmm. You know, as part of the thing, the the first step actually is learn the game, uh, so that you know little things yeah. like the percentages on what push dice are going to be and stuff like that, because that doesn't matter what faction you are. Uh, also, like, right. not running to an objective before you're ready. Like, uh, I've noticed some players will put a hero onto an objective to take the objective early, but it has no support whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't have, you know, its shield guards out there. It doesn't have, it, or sorry, uh, what are they called in this game? Uh, body block. Body blocks. So they don't have their body blocks out there, or they don't have uh, just some followers uh, to block movement to keep something from running past and killing that hero right off the objective. Uh, so sometimes developing your followers, which I think uh, is something that, you know, we all, or haven't learned yet is developing our followers. We tend to, or at least a lot of the games that I've been seeing lately, we tend to use them as a secondary line rather than a front line. Uh, they can block movement. They can they can do all kinds of stuff to to aid the heroes in doing what the heroes need to do. Yeah, for sure. And like talking about just learning the base game, you know. Uh, at the very beginning of this recent asked about you know a tempo based war game and that's definitely something you have to consider is in this game there's so many resources and managing your resources is so important so you know the big ones are bigger in shards so making sure like making that determination of 
is this when I need to spend my vigor? Because I only have a limited amount and I can't count on the attack die giving me more. Uh, and depending on, you know, what models you're running, that's going to be a, a even larger choice because some models need vigor in order to score victory points. Some models need vigor in order to do other, you know, fancy stuff that they want to do. And so determining when to use that resource is incredibly important. Yeah. And as some well models as... Need- I was gonna say some models mm-hmm. need to use an action and a vigor or an action and a shard to you know score victory points. So there's a lot of economy you need to balance out. Yep. And then the, the next one is shards. <clears throat> and shards are important because you have to spend actions to gain them. Right? Even at the even at the very least, you have to spend an action to move someone to a shard deposit in order to catch the eruptions. So that's at the very least costing you actions. And then from there, you need to spend actions in order to collect more shards. And shards are super important because, you know, the difference between can I kill that shard knight with one shard and can I kill that shard knight with five shards is (laughs) drastically, drastically different. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Plus, there's so many other abilities and things that that activate off of off of shards yes and then the final one that i i'm always paying attention to that i've i've had other people tell me they need to focus on more is your exhaustion economy um which is just an aspect of activation economy and paying attention to you know who what models have exhaustion what models don't which one so planning out your activations for the next couple of turns based off what has exhaustion and most importantly trying to figure out when and how you can reset your exhaustion to open up your options to you again um so sometimes like you're in a you're in a tricky situation where you're sitting there and just like okay cool if i activate these models like i really want to take a barracks action because i'm just i don't have a lot going on but is that going to progress my play forward or should I wait until I activate this follower group and this hero so that I can reset my exhaustion tokens and then barracks action next turn. Then I have a whole bunch of options for later on. And so that's where the tempo aspect comes in because if you barracks action first, you've got a lot more models, but your options are lower because your exhaustions, the other stuff that's still alive is going to be exhausted and whenever you switch over to lull phase, that that exhaustion might stick, and so then that's going to you know further on down the down the game, you you might be in a situation where you don't have the options that you need, um, and so that that exhaustion economy, I I love messing around with that. Um, it, I love the way they've implemented it with the full clear plus the lull phase clear, and uh, yeah, it's it's, it's a whole another aspect. Of it. That you got yeah. to oh, for sure. But yeah, so the um, the, the 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 big overarching sort of this is what you do strategy, and then adapting is tactics. So with a tactical play like that, I th- I think builds off what you just mentioned before, Spencer, about the exhaustion economy is like all it takes, especially against something like Risen, where the Risen have a lot of models that can mess with your exhaustion um, and throw off what you're about to do. Um, and 
being able to adapt to that quickly like you know you're like oh i can activate this guy and then you know your opponent does a yolo play kills the hero that you were going to activate which means you now need to take a barracks action which spawns dudes that will you know throw off your your um clear like it's something that you always need to take into account um i know you've played a few games now red have you ever had any problems where what any sort of tips on how you would deal with that sort of situation so uh, economies or advantages in a lot of games there is a lot of theory crafting when it comes to uh like in card games you hear card advantage uh, uh you hear tempo a lot uh, and what what these advantages are is about having options that your opponent doesn't have if i can limit my opponent's options then at that point i can control the pace of the game in a tempo based game this is very important so you should really be cognizant of what your opponent can do. And like playing into Risen, uh, I think Risen is the one that I worry about a lot when I see Quorum on the board, uh, simply because he could disrupt my plan at any time by just throwing an exhaustion token out there. Uh, he can exhaust uh, the, the Nightblade, though I uh, have heard that uh, people don't like him as much. I think he is another key strategy in Risen's uh, exhaustion play uh, as he runs around the board and exhausts Rivenstones, uh, which messes with your shard economy. Uh, this allows a player to gain uh, model advantage in the form of having more actions than the opponent, uh, as well as having uh, uh, shard advantage by having more shards available to them. And as we know in this game, uh, model advantage can come in two forms. Uh, one, I can just have actually physically more models on the board than my opponent because I've killed enough and he hasn't been using his barracks or his lull phase refreshes as often as I have or as properly as I have. And so therefore I just have more models. And then the other way is by exhausting models to where I have more options on the table to activate. Uh, and in those cases, I gain advantage. So when I am looking at trying to play my way out of it, my biggest thing is to have advantage over my opponent uh, rather than allowing them to have advantage over me. So I try to strike first while the iron's hot. I kind of go with a good offense is, is better than uh, defense against this because once I'm put under in model advantage, it is hard to unbury myself in, in, in that situation, uh, unless the model advantage is coming from them removing models. If they're removing models, then at that point I can uh, easily bring out more models. Uh, and so I'm gonna activate my barracks more often uh, at that point to try to get out of that model advantage. If you have exhausted me, uh, and just recently I've been really exploring uh, the guys who can remove exhaustion from each other. So like the Battlemaster has an ability to remove exhaustion off of uh, brutes uh, and stuff like that. Uh, and so my plan into those kind of games is to not give you, a, to give you suboptimal targets that I could remove the exhaustion off of. So yeah, you're still putting an exhaustion on, on a model, but you put it on my brute and my Battlemaster moves forward and removes all those exhaustions and now my brutes are are getting an extra activation at that point uh this is another way to try to gain model advantage or to work your way out of it yeah for sure no that, that works perfectly what about you spencer any thoughts on that as well well i know one one thing that 
Red just mentioned was, you know, strike while the while the iron's hot or something along those lines, and basically just playing aggressively. And I 100% agree. I'm a very very aggressive player, and uh, I that's that's why I love work. <laughs> and on top of that is the the math of Rivenstone is skewed towards the attack always. So the more aggressive you can be then the more likely you are to achieve your goals um, in general. The more passive you are, then that gives the opponent better opportunities to dictate the flow of the game, whereas I want to be the one dictating the flow of the game. Because um, if I'm reacting rather than you know acting, then that, that, that's already putting me at a disadvantage. Um, we're talking about, you know, different, you know, economies and different advantages and things of that nature. That's just the basic tempo advantages. If, if you're acting, you, you're, you're, you have an advantage. If you're reacting, you're at a disadvantage. And that's something to consider. But at the same time, you need to be able to react effectively. And that's kind of where the strategic versus tactical thinking bit comes in. Cause like, having your game plan is super important and you want to see that that come to fruition. And, you know, sometimes you might have a game plan that takes four rounds to set up. Like I had, I had one with like this dwarf swarm play that was the case uh, a couple of games ago where I had been planning it out for four turns. And then whenever it actually, like I was able to do it, it was just amazing. Six dwarves pop out of a, uh, a breach pad in the middle of the table across the board. I uh, go from controlling real objectives to controlling a little bit. Um, <laughs> was super, super cool. Uh, but that took a lot of setup. But in the middle of that, I had a really cool opportunity uh, just based off where, like, what I had available, which wasn't a lot, because if you think about it, if I had thick dwarves pop out of a, uh, a barrel, it means almost everything is dead. <laughs> yep. So I had to look at what I had available. What I had available was a couple tunnel fighters and a weldmonger. And you know, I looked at it and I was like, all right, cool. Well, if these tunnel fighters are able to poke this exiled knight twice, then I can move my weldmonger into a place to where he's already in melee and I can just smack them a couple of times and potentially kill him. And I was like, this opportunity has presented itself. I'm going to go for it. And so I went for it and it turned out well. And it was like a super awesome like feeling just seeing like, you know, how, what do I have available? How can I make them work in order to get me the advantages that I need right now? The best part was that well, longer is that one help. <laughs> That's the best part. Um, and so being able to react to the situation while still maintaining your game plan is is like the most important thing. You can't get thrown off when things don't necessarily go your way because um, you always have to have a backup plan. If you don't have a backup plan, then that's when the, 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 the getting salty and getting frustrated happens because then you feel like there's nothing you can do and nobody likes feeling like there's nothing you can do. That's um that's something I've very very rarely run into in Rivenstone so far, which is you know you start a turn and you're like 
there's nothing I can do. Because there's usually at least one thing you can give a shot. The only time I, th I find that that sort of doesn't hold true is, you know, it's like round three, flux four, and you've got like two models left on the board with like no way to score. And you're like, well, there's probably nothing I can do. Um, but otherwise, you've, you're always in for a chance. Like, I played a game the other day, oh, yesterday actually, um, with using just all terrestrial fiends and imps. Um, and even when the, uh, against uh, Bagels, and when the fiends just nuked everything off the board, he still came back and won the game. Um, even though, you know, you, you, as a, you could look, I think he had one model left at the, um, in the last sort of turn of the game and was able to, to win the game off of the back of it. So it's always good to sort of see that that is still something that can happen. It's like Eternal Seer and Overs and Foot Soldier, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, and, that's that's a, and that's all it took. <laughs> that's something else yeah. that I just thought of with model advantage. In a roundabout way, sometimes you'll see things that are subtle on, on models. Uh, so, like, uh, we all can point to easily with model advantage, we can always point to Quorum. Uh, Quorum is completely, you know, a tempo, you know, exhaustion model advantage type model. Uh, we can point to the, to the, to the, to the, the poisoner. Uh, so it's easy to see that he puts exhaustion tokens on things. But another thing that's model advantage in Risen that a lot of people uh, may not be aware that it is model advantage is just they're hard to kill. Uh, one of the strategies in gaining model advantage where part of an aggressive strategy really helps out is killing models that aren't exhausted over models that are exhausted and being aware of where their clear is to mess with their activation economy as well as their uh, getting model advantage in the form of having more options than your opponent. Uh, and the Risen uh, have a problem in the fact that they could just not die and thwart your plan right then and there. <laughs> you know, like uh, that's uh, something that's kind of like a soft, subtle model advantage in there. Yeah, I've seen. I've seen situations where, like on Tale of Storms, when you have the event deck that deals damage to something, whenever you roll a medium or a long um, in on the shard die, and people are like, okay, cool. So I've got this one Risen Archer back here. That's the only follower I have that's unactivated. So I'm going to deal the damage to it. And I'm going to kill it. And then I'm going to be able to full clear next turn. And then they're hard to kill. Pops <laughs> up, and it's like, yeah. And I think in one game I watched, that was the only hard to kill role they made the entire game. Yep, that was yesterday. <laughs> that was my game against um against Bagel. It was just like, yep, there was the the only hard to kill was literally a spanner in the works. Yeah, yeah, which is really. It happens, and and that's where the strategic versus tactical comes in because you had this plan. And then one die roll, suddenly now I have to adjust my plan on the fly, uh, but still keep my overall goal of scoring victory points, you know, getting model advantage. Um, one of the things I do want to talk about later on, just to kind of put it in your mind, Reese, is centralized threat, uh, which yep. is an interesting uh, uh, tactical stratagem that uh, is used in other war games. Yeah, for sure. That sounds exciting. I don't know what it is, but it sounds like you don't, Oh, so you haven't you haven't you haven't heard about this one? This is a war machine thing. 
uh, that I think is for that. I hear yeah, you're the terms guy. Once again, I've, I've I've barely been playing war games. I just apparently happen to be good at them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like the, the the game theory behind them and the terms and all kind of stuff. Like I'm a new bit. Uh, but if you want me to coach, if you want me to coach you through how to beat this person, I can do that. Right. You 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 <laughs> got the. It's better to have massive talent than all the theory, right? Because all the theory is just <laughs> makes you a good coach, but it doesn't actually make you a good player. <laughs> yeah, I I mean I love the theory. I just I just don't know where to get it. You know, like uh, a lot of it's just talking to other players. Like uh, when you played over the over a course of time, you just talk to players and there are some people who have written uh blogs or uh, posts like the whole card advantage versus tempo which is how i apply card advantage i apply it to model advantage uh in this game i learned that in a book on magic theory uh for playing magic the gathering and then i look at this game and i'm like oh you know this actually does apply here too as well and centralized threat is actually something I learned at Adepticon this year, talking to players at a tournament. Uh, one of them was like, oh, yeah, you just use centralized threat. And I was like, uh, what is centralized threat? And he's like, oh, it's just this. And I was like, that's so simple. Why haven't I thought of it? <laughs> like, it's, uh, <laughs> it's so crazy. Because the, the basics, uh, I'll just go into it, I guess. Uh, the basics yeah, is... Yeah, I was going to say, like, hit us up with it. Like, obviously. Yeah. So the basics, the basics of centralized threat is choosing the model. So like when I'm playing Oryx, I know that everybody that I'm playing into who has played against Oryx looks at Tor and goes, oh, I got to watch that guy. Right. So he is my 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 large threat. And so what I want to do is I want him to put him towards the center of the board. And this relates and what what was so odd to me is that this related directly to chess theory which i've been playing chess for a long time where you want to develop the center of the board first uh because a knight on the center has multiple areas that it can attack where a knight on the edge only has a limited places that it can attack so what you're going to do is you're going to take tor and you're going to put him into a secured position on the center of the board to where if your opponent moves into any area around him, he could take them out. And so that adjusts your, uh, your opponent's play because he's scared of Tor. He now has to adjust his entire game plan to making sure Tor doesn't kill his whatever his favorite thing is or destroy his strategy with Tor. And that's really all it is. Uh, so they call it the the theory of centralized threat. Uh, and I thought it was just so simplistic and easy. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so it's, just, it's, just, it's just an aspect of uh, like pressure. Yeah, it's um, an aspect of pressure in chess theory. Yeah. Yeah, which, uh, which is funny because like I've, I've been doing it on accident because I pretty much always like initial deployment first thing i do tour center of the board <laughs> he, he said right right at 18 18 medium right <laughs> uh because he's fast and he can react to, to to what my opponent's doing and also threatens the entire board that way um yeah yeah that's that's definitely super interesting it's kind of like reverse distraction carnifax yeah um, we used to call them the wear cow uh for the longest time but yeah, <laughs> yeah and why don't you go yeah, in 
why don't you go into distraction current effects slash wear count uh, and uh, talk about that theory? Because that's also another very interesting theory to apply uh, to opponent. Yeah, yeah. So the distraction current effects is, is basically putting out, you know, it's similar where you want to put this big, scary model that your opponent knows they have to deal with um, in a position to where they're going to have to react to it. And then that's going to allow you to progress uh, a, a different game plan that you have. Um, so the e easy distraction Carnifex is in, in like Riverstone where all of your, your, your named heroes, because they're worth a lot of bounty and they're big and they're scary. Um, but another really easy one is the Stone Touch Knight that we talked about before, because that is a model that your opponent has to react to, or it's going to just sit there and do nothing and score victory points. And I love using the, the SDK that way, because it's like, I'm going to put him here, and my opponent has to come deal with it. And yeah. if they don't kill him, he's going to turn around and smack them in the face, Reese. <laughs> I was gonna say like it was or, great. as soon as you started talking about distraction conflicts, I was like, STK is the best distraction conflict. He absolutely yeah. is. Or yeah, or it's going to put them in a situation where I can then I then have my other models set up in a way that they can react to that and put me in in, in a good advantage. Um and so they're 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 kind of similar in the same way in terms of it's about pressuring your opponent and making them react to your models and if you right. can have that pressure advantage and make it to where your opponent is reacting to what you're doing then you are in a better position to right. you know win the game yeah and the big the big difference between the two is in you're both both strategies use a model that your opponent is scared of or thinks he needs to deal with in a centralized threat you're putting that model in a safe position where he becomes the alpha striker and in distraction carnifex uh, or rare cow you're putting that model in a situation where your opponent can attack him but that model is not uh it's basically wasting your opponent's uh, your opponent's actions because that model isn't central to your plan. Where centralized threat, that model is central to your plan for board control. In distraction Carnifex, the model is not. You could care less if it dies or not. You're just using it to manipulate your opponents uh, uh, to get your opponents sometimes to overextend or to just getting to a different part of the board than you really want him to be. Uh, that's why they call it a distraction. Carnifex is from 40k. Yeah, mm. yep. yeah I, would, I would use that in, in Warcaster all the time because I knew how much my opponents hated Astrius. And I would look at the board and be like, okay, cool, so this is, this is the play that they should make. And that's going to score them some scenario points. Yeah. But if I put Astrius out, that might be enough to distract them from making that play to go kill Astrius because they're scared of them and they hate him. And I will trade him for those victory points. Yep, absolutely. And like that's 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 the concept behind the, the distraction corner effects is, is you're trading 
potentially trading a model that you're not that worried about because like you said it's not centralized to your plan right in order to make your opponent make mm -hmm. a decision that is going to put you at advantage or them at a disadvantage and this is why the stk is the greatest wear cow of all wear cows in my mind because i can place stk out to the central objective he has only one earth one victory point in bounty uh if he dies he is worth a victory point to me if he lives on that objective and you don't deal with him and if you do kill him you're probably killing with the tour or something large and then I'm going to gain four VP in bounty when I take out that item. So my actual objective is to kill whatever kills STK Knight. The STK is just there right. as a rare cow. That's all he's there for. Uh, which goes back to your earlier point. Sometimes it is more important just to push him out of the way and not actually kill him. <laughs> like, don't take the bait. It's a rare cow. Watch out. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and the reason that I call them wear cows, and you'll hear me say this this term a lot because it's just ingrained in our vocabulary, is we used to LARP. We used to play werewolf when we LARPed. I had a werewolf who could change into any animal, and he was kind of a, a, a trickster. And so one of our battle strategies was I was going to change into a wear cow and shoot milk in the face of our opponent while the actual pack attacked the, the true objective. So I was literally a wear cow. And so then when we started playing war games, that is where we always call it, oh, that's a wear cow. Don't, don't, don't get distracted by that. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that is an interesting uh, metaphor to have heard. And I, I appreciate it. Yeah. That is a story. Right. <laughs> so that's why we've always called it the wear cow. And then the distraction card effects, I started hearing about that. And I was like, oh, we've been using this terminology for a long time. <laughs> yeah uh, but still so yeah that's no, a lot um, yeah yeah and that's <laughs> i mean sure like if, if and feel free guys like to because like uh, the the reason i've sort of led this one from a question point of view is like i am a very very casual gamer um and i know that spence is a very good gamer and red's a very competitive gamer so it's like for me it was like i'm happy to just absorb the knowledge um but like realistically, I think that um, a lot of what we've spoken about here, like in this episode, is very sort of broad spectrum. When we get into mm -hmm. the actual scenarios and when we go through the factions, we'll obviously be able to dive deeper into personalized experience. Um, but this is like, you know, this is a thing that you should always be thinking of if you can. Um, and then when we, you know, if you're playing Machinations, this is something that's specific, which will be in Machinations. And if you're playing Shattered Empire, then this is also something specific, which you can then use the, the concept of this episode mixed with scenario and faction to build a more personalized, you know, uh, view on exactly what you think, or what we think is probably more accurate for you, what we think is useful when you are running into these sorts of situations. Yeah, basically, yeah, we're going to give you we're going to give you the vocabulary that we use before we start to go in and talk about, you know, these kind of things when we get into uh, the actual scenarios and stuff. Yeah, I think one big thing that we haven't touched on yet that's super critical is positioning. Yeah, and that's a, a huge topic in and of itself and mm. is very dependent on board state. But 
when it comes down to like the very basics of it, it also goes a bit into your um, action economies as well. And so what you want to do is you want to always position yourself in a way that is advantageous to you and disadvantageous to your opponent. So whether that is positioning yourself to where your model can both attack an opponent's model and be on an objective or attack an opponent's model and be in a position to catch a ribbon stone um, or things of that nature. But it's also about doing it in a defensive position. So being able to position yourself in a way such that you can accomplish your goals and prevent um, your opponents from accomplishing those goals. Yeah. And one thing I like one takeaway from my uh, coaching session with <laughs> Bagel uh, versus Reese um, was I, I didn't point this out. I saw it and um, it, it ended up uh, hurting in the long run was what I noticed a lot of people do just because they're used to it from other games is like when they're going in for a melee attack, they still put their model like practically base to base with another model. Yeah. When in this game, most models have a two inch melee range, which gives you a lot of positioning potential. Mm -hmm. And so if you can take advantage of that whole two inches, then you can put your models in a position that's, you know, often going to be much more advantageous to yourself, whether from a defensive position or something of that nature, as well as if you look at your economies, like say you charge in, because this was the situation. If you charge in to uh, attack uh, a terrestrial fiend with an exiled knight, because that, that's the example, this is what happened. Um, and he goes in to attack it. If you save your last action and don't use it to make your second attack, but instead spend shards, then that gives you the option to once you run out of shards or you're no longer in a position to where you're comfortable spending those shards to uh, finish off the model, then you can either use that last action to make that attack if you still need to make attacks, or you can use it to run away. And, uh, you know, if you look at where your opponent's models are placed and it's like, okay, cool, so if I place it here, I go in, I make my attacks, and I save that action, then I run away, then there's nothing that my opponent can do in order to react to that, and then that's going to give me another... That's going to keep him safe, it's going to keep him from scoring that bounty, and it's going to give me another model to be able to use in the future. Um, then that's really important. So paying attention to where your models are positioned, where your opponent's models are positioned, what their threats are, and how you can mitigate them is is important so that's just another aspect of the game from a tactical perspective that that you need to be taking advantage of because the more you can take advantage of all of the space that your model interacts with on the board then the better you're going to be right and two things to touch on that the first thing is when he was talking about saving your action for and then spending a shard for the attack because you can spend shards for attack where actions have more more options all of these theories on advantage deal with gaining more options anytime you're wanting to gain advantage and you hear the word advantage you know it is 90 percent of the time talking about having more options than your opponent uh, so definitely take advantage of using shards to gain more options so that you can get uh, get some advantage there 
And then the second thing on positioning, uh, using your full melee range, not only using your own full melee range, one of the biggest uh, things that you need to know to gain good positioning, and this is once we get to that level three of learning your opponent's army, because learning, learning the game, learning your army, learning your opponent's army, level three. When you hit that level three, you want to understand threat range. Uh, threat range will help you in positioning your models to where you're out of threat range, which, uh, so instead of going, and I see this with a lot of new players, when they are given six inches to move, for some reason, they always feel that they have to move the full six inches. You don't, you don't have to move the full six inches. If I can get to my objective yeah. in four inches and be on the backside of the objective, but that positions me out of threat range from Tor or or the Saberfang Guardian, I want to be on the backside of that objective where that model can't get to me. And then if he does run up to try to set up to get me next turn, I then have the option to, especially if we're talking about like STK or any of the heroes that have stamina two or, you know, or better, uh, I could activate again and then deal with that model because he could not, he could not get to me. And if you are setting up to get to a model, it's sometimes better to know their threat range so that they can't counterplay because I'm going to do one move to set myself up. And then on the next move, I'm going to tag him on that objective. Or uh, if I am positioning to guard an objective, but I'm not wanting to be on that objective yet because I'm in early round, not in round, setting up for end round. Uh, I might position to where I could attack somebody touching the back end of that objective, but be far enough back to where, you know, they can't get to me with their threat range. So I put the backside of the objective in my threat range so that I could get to them. Uh, if you see somebody, yeah. if you see somebody setting up like this, uh, sometimes it is good to activate and run a blocker uh, ahead cutting their threat range to where they would connect with a different model and can't go past it to be able to then on your second activation or your second maneuver uh then set your model to the backside where he's in a safe position so sometimes just having blockers can also destroy a threat range and put yourself in a safe positioning mm. yeah 100 percent. and then one of the other things with this game and threat ranges is that they can be very deceptive because yes. you can move, run, and then just buy attacks. Um, mm -hmm. So you also need to be looking at that that resource management aspect of the game and being like, okay, cool. How many resources does my how many shards does my opponent have? And also, are their models in position to get them more shards next turn? Yeah. Um, I mean, so luckily, that's, that's another whole aspect. Luckily, we're in the early part of this because the next things that are coming, like anybody who's played board games uh, and we know about threat ranges, we know that threat range manipulators are the next thing to come where you're going to have models that can move other models to extend their threat range or add movement to them to extend their threat range. Or you have the exact opposite of what Sneaky was saying, where you do want to base to base because this model can move after it gets hit. Uh, you know, like those kind of models uh, start to mess with the whole positioning uh, in design of a game. And luckily, we're in wave one, so we haven't got to those yet. So learn positioning now, 
Well, <laughs> there's there's the show night, the dreads boss. Oh, that so, is true. Oh, yes, we do have a drag. We do have a drag, which does mess with the uh, yeah. ranges. So yeah, uh, for yeah, all you drag, Shard Knight can throw followers forward, and the Judge Boss can also throw followers. So when um, playing IG and playing uh, <laughs> against Shattered Empire Shard Knights, remember your positioning. <laughs> uh, it starts to get weird because they can change positioning rather quickly. <laughs> and like the Worldmonger with its medium drop hammer push is also really really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the wardens also have e hammers. Yeah, yep. Or the bar the barracks just moves. <laughs> the barracks yeah. just moves and then spawns, and then they get yeah. an extra short. So suddenly you're like, okay, if he brings this follower out of his barracks, I'm just out. And then suddenly moves the barracks and then spawns and then moves moves, and you're like, oh, I didn't take that into account. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, well, I, that's a that's a whole other thing is when you start getting into like risen being able to like pop followers out of nowhere as well as all of the barracks except for iron guard have the ability to pop followers out of nowhere yep exactly um, uh, and I, i'm yeah. gonna point i'm gonna actually in our mother load episode which is the next episode i've got a trick uh that i played recently that will actually uh tie back into this episode so nice yeah there was Excellent something else i was thinking about but i got totally distracted and forgot what it was so <laughs> we'll remember it sooner later that's yeah, exactly it'll, it it'll pop, it'll pop up at some point yeah yeah for sure so yeah keep your ears keep your ears peeled for that one eventually spencer will be like wait that's the thing i was gonna say like 17 hours ago um <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks um but yeah i think that's um that more or less wraps up our, our conversation on strategy and tactics um as a as a sort of you know global concept for the game yeah um, unless you guys have any very final thoughts no i think that's a really good introduction to the kind of what our thought processes are and where we think when we start thinking competitively about the game uh instead of just going raw and moving the model yeah, guys, that's um that's been barracks action, um where we've you know discussed the strategy and tactics for uh, the actual game as a whole. Um, remember, uh, so we've got our we'll put it in the show notes as well. But our Discord's open for everybody. Uh, if you haven't joined it already, uh, there's games for TTS running in there basically all the time. Uh, I think as of recording, I think there's two going on uh, as we speak. Um, but yeah, we're we're always happy to see new people in there. Um, we've all, we'll all run demos as well. So if you want um you know but everybody in the discord's probably at least had one game by now to be honest um so we just want people to play the game and have fun with the game like we have um so that'll all be in the uh the show notes as well um and as always yeah we'll uh give us a follow on because we're on the line of sight network so loswarmachine.com uh and barracks action is there all of our episodes are going to be there um and yeah uh, red spencer thanks for thanks for this one guys it's been an absolute joy yeah, it's been fun. See you all later. Bye.
music entitled District 4, provided by Kevin McLeod of Incomputech.com. Licensed under the Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. You can find out more about the Creative Commons license at creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 4.0.